there's no way I will get this right. Absolutely no way. No way that I'll get it correct or right for everyone in this room. Because everyone in this room represents, in some way, shape, or form, a different kind of, different perception of, and a different experience of family. So this is an impossible task, finding family. In fact, as I was writing, thinking, conceiving, I sort of said to myself, oh, you should really just change the title of this. <laughs> You've set yourself up with this one. My own family is very interesting. I love to talk about my, my family, but I will not talk about my family today. I will do them that courtesy. <laughs> you say that like I'm withholding some great <laughs> secret of some kind. And I am not. But I will say this much about my experience of family. As a child of the 1970s and early 80s, I was really into television, and anyone else who was traveling through life at that time might also be aware of the television show The Brady Bunch, and a whole host of other television programs that centered around families. In fact, it's interesting, the history of television, without going too deep into that, has always focused on families. The most successful television shows have all focused on families in one shape or form. I mean, I Love Lucy, hello. The Brady Bunch, of course. All those 80s sitcoms. And families of different kinds. But I had this thing for the Brady Bunch because it was so easy. <laughs> like, you just turn it on, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I know, a half hour, this is gonna come out great. You know, Marsha's gonna date the guy, Greg's gonna get the car, you know, the spider isn't gonna bite Peter. Uh, you know, it's, it's all gonna work out just fine. If you do not know the Brady Bunch, and you're unfamiliar with the Brady Bunch, whether it pre or post dates you, I encourage you to Google it, go to YouTube, check it out. You will have a tremendous insight into your minister. <laughs> then you fast forward. You fast forward to the more recent era of reality television. And families like, dun, 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 first time I'm even saying this name in this pulpit, but yeah, I'm going to do it, going to do it, the Kardashians. Now, I have not actually watched a full episode, at least, of the Kardashians, but it represents a whole other way of experiencing family through media, where you're brought into what is supposedly the you know, weird sides and the conflicts and the, all that of, of the family. But I gotta say, even with, with the limited amount that I have seen of reality television family life, it is still much too easy. I want to present to you um, something that I, 
I hadn't intended to bring into this service, but realized after hearing it in person needed to be part of this service because of this idea that it's not that easy to be family. But before I get to that, I want to just put out there this one word, cultivation. Cultivation. And when I say cultivation, I'm talking about not just growth, not just the passive act of something growing or the active part of our you know, existence that is growth. I'm talking about engaging, intentionally engaging with something, some place. So when I say cultivation throughout the rest of this message, I'm talking about how you are present intentionally in the growth experience. As I said, though, there was something that I participated in this week that got me thinking very differently about family, and that was the Cambridge Forum. Thank you, Cambridge Forum. Thank you, Cambridge Forum, for bringing the author Michael Kimmel and his book, Healing from Hate. And thank you, <laughs> thank you, Mary Stack, for getting two former neo-Nazis to sit in this space and tell their story. And what was remarkable to me was how, in these two young gentlemen's stories, how clear it was that what they were looking for in the neo-Nazi movement was family. And that gives a whole other twist to this idea of family. Let me share just a little bit from the book healing from hate. Michael Kimmel writes of one of, actually he was one of our guests, uh, his name uh, was Frankie. He said that living with his drug-addicted mother and her enraged alcoholic husband, his stepfather, was a constant torment. And Frankie said, I wished every day of my life to get hit by a car. Michael's response, seriously? And Frankie replies, no, 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 not get killed by a car, just to go to the hospital. I'd rather go to the hospital than go home. That was his experience of teenage years. He then goes on and talks about his indoctrination into the movement, and briefly he says, I got the crap kicked out of me all the time. But then some skinheads began to hang out in the neighborhood, new guys, not from around there. They were compelling. They had cars, beer, girls. They were powerful. He tagged along, and they began to talk to him. And after a few months, they'd convinced Frankie that a multiracial society would never work. Just look around, they would say. Everybody hates everybody else. You have to choose your people and stand with them. So Frankie made his choice. He made his stand. He shaved his head, added red, uh, red laces to his Doc Martens. He was a 14-year-old neo-Nazi skinhead. For the first time in his life, he felt like he mattered. Not so easy. Not the Brady Bunch, not the Kardashians the real world of people looking for family. 
I said I wasn't going to bring my family into it. I'm not, but I will bring some of my experience as an adult traveling wild distances, going to new places, in fact, going to seminary in California on the other coast. And when I arrived in California, I said to myself, I need to find some kind of community, some family of some kind. And I just want to tell you briefly that sometimes it goes wrong. You do it, I will call it the wrong way. As I said, I cannot get this right. I said to myself, I would love to be part of a family or a community of people that's helping others who need that help. So right there was the first challenge, the first problem with what I was doing. I put myself in the equation. I put myself forward in that whole mix and said, this is about me and what I can do in the world. Oh, look at good little me. And so I staked out my turf. I said, I had done some volunteering work with an uh, AIDS activist group, and I said, I'm going to reach out to an AIDS activist group, and I'm going to support them, because that's the good thing to do, especially as a new minister. And without going into all the details, because I witnessed in that group, in their meetings, I witnessed this depth of connection, this, this interdependence, this sense of helping each other feel valued and validated that I, as someone who is not HIV positive, is not living that experience, could not actually participate in. And I became a spectator and invasive. And I was not able to continue to support this group. Tough lesson to look at a group of people who were creating something that I was like, I want to, I want to, yes, but I was doing it for the wrong reason. We can't cultivate, there's that word again, we can't cultivate family for a specific reward. I don't know of anyone who is a parent who says, I'm going to feed my child because, well, maybe you have to every now and then, I'm going to feed my child because that I, I will get something out of that in return. I mean, yeah, it, it, a laugh. I mean, it's worth actually having a chuckle over that. I mean, it, it's not, as they say, I give you something, I, you, you get it back, quid pro quo. Give it another spin, because I like to give things lots of spins make you dizzy. We don't open the borders of this country to people who are fleeing violence because they will be good workers. We do it because we want to affirm our shared humanity. And that's kind of where I want to go with this idea of family. You know, Frankie was looking for someone who would affirm his humanity who wouldn't just dismiss him, beat him, throw him away. I was looking for someone who would care for my caring for them. We're all looking for something. 
We're all looking for something that will give us a sense of our whole selves, a sense of being seen, heard, affirmed, provide some foundation for us, and a sense of belonging. A belonging that allows us to trust in ourselves and to trust in the world and our ability to navigate that world. And so, wrapping this up, I would like to turn to another nuance, another side of this question of family, and it involves the word alone. Alone is often kind of a dirty word in our culture. But people, for all kinds of different reasons, find themselves alone. And I want to say here and now, there is no shame in being alone for whatever reason you may be singularly physically alone. It's important for us to remember that we can cultivate this sense of being, sense of being family, even if we don't have family. We have to actually do that so that we survive. Even if we are single, solitary human beings navigating this world, we could be widowed, we could be just single, we could be in a different part of the world, a new place, but we're still going to be looking for ways to see and feel and experience our whole selves, to be affirmed, to have some kind of foundation, a sense of belonging, and a way to trust in ourselves and to trust that we are capable of navigating this world. And so what I would like to encourage us to do as a community and I distinguish between community and family, intentionally. As a community, I would like us to commit through this season and ongoing to creating an environment where we're first able to cultivate this sense of being family from within and then out within the wider community as well. I'm going to give you a couple of clues as to ways that I think we can do that. First, don't assume that everyone has or even wants a family in the traditional sense in their lives. That's a good way to navigate in the first place anywhere you go. Don't make assumptions. Then maybe ask, how can I interact with people to support their sense of being in this family of humanity. So without assumptions, without making decisions for others, how can you affirm them? And then how can you interact and regard yourself to support your own sense of being in this family of humanity? 
I'm going to share with you a poem written by a colleague of mine, Andrea Jenkins. She is the uh, first transgender person elected to public office in this nation and um, is also a phenomenal poet. I'd like to share this poem with you at this time. It's called, For One Who Tends Gardens. As you overturn the soil on yet another new garden, you worry, will this patch grow? What is the right amount of fertilizer? How do I protect this precious garden from the pests of life? You, mother to nature, nurturing basil and heirloom tomatoes, cauliflower and broccoli. You make wildflowers bloom in the most unanticipated places, along seashores, in the forest, on top of mountains, in the cracks on the concrete. Your determination is only matched by this wild child's insistence on independence. And you know this instinctively. It's a dynamic dance, twirling. At times, you become exhausted. You cry silently. Sometimes there's a sudden outburst, thunderclaps, erupting volcanoes, rain and lava. Reimagine the landscape. Mothers fight for their children's rights, for their chance to grow like that garden. Knowing all along, nothing is ever guaranteed. So you fill that child with your love, remaining hopeful. Mother of the garden, you lean in, observe, interpret, and intervene. First parish must be a place that helps each of us participate in what it means to cultivate and nurture a sense of belonging, this sense of family. I encourage you over this season to engage each other, but don't interrogate each other. Embrace each other's stories, but don't force them on each other and don't demand them from one another. Invite, ask, offer to cry or laugh with, not at. Let the many ways in which we are capable of cultivating the sense of being family this season be based in the imperfect and shared project of love. Blessed be.